Well, what a beautiful fall morning, and I'm so pleased that you're here. And uh, those of you worshiping with us at our uh, campuses, I'm just uh, grateful that we get to jump into part four of this series on this major character in the Bible. His name is uh, Daniel, and he lived about uh, 600 years before the time of Jesus. And uh, we've been dropping in on his story, six-part series. I have the privilege of carrying his parts one through four. Pastor Aaron Buer jumps in uh, next weekend and takes parts uh, five and six, and know you'll love uh, what Aaron will bring over the next two weeks. And so uh, let me begin just with a, a podcast question. A show of hands here and at our campuses as well. Uh, have any of you ever listened to a podcast called How I Built This? How I Built This Podcast? All right. The How I Built This Podcast, the host is uh, Guy Raz, and he pulls in different people who built companies. And so he does interviews uh, with people like uh, Five Guys, Burgers and Fries, Ben and Jerry's, Airbnb, uh, Chipotle, Mexican Restaurant. And through a process of an hour or so in dialogue with the person that started the company, you know, they talk about the ups and downs. When did you want to quit? What were your most demoralizing moments? What were your uh, breakthroughs? But with each entrepreneur he talks to, with each person who started a company, he always ends by asking the same question. Program always ends with a question to the person that launches this successful company. This is a question. So how much of your success do you attribute to hard work and how much of it was luck? How much was hard work and how much was luck? Now, no one has ever said 100% luck. Everything just kind of fell together. There's always kind of this pause, and like, man, it, it took an incredible amount of work to get this thing off the ground. But then almost everybody is also just kind of like with the voice of humility to talk about things that were beyond their control that happened, some fortuitous moment, good fortune that entered the picture, uh, 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 relatives that gave them money to invest early in the company. Uh, some people talk about a major store that did this massive order that was their breakthrough moment. Other individuals, they talk about a mentor that came their way, a word of advice that they received, or some other kind of breakthrough out of the blue, someone that encouraged the project, a staff person that did marketing that helped it get airborne. And so almost everybody says it's just this combination of really hard work, but also this voice of humility. It talks about how there were factors beyond their control that assisted in the success. I want you to keep Guy Raz's question in mind. How much of this was hard work? How much of this was luck? as we travel together to Babylon the Great. There's just an image here of the city of Babylon, kind of like artist's rendition of the city. This, this Babylon in uh, 600 BC was the Babylon of Nebuchadnezzar the Great. It wasn't a new city. Uh, Babylon had existed for over a thousand years, but this is, technical term for the day, the Neo-Babylonian Empire. This is new Babylon. And I'm telling you, everything was new. It was just new streets, new gates, new walls, restored temples, massive gardens. And this was done under the leadership of this king called Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if Guy Raz were interviewing Nebuchadnezzar and asked the question, here's Babylon the Great, the center of power, center of education, the largest city in the world, 
So, hard work or luck, I think Nebuchadnezzar would just say, I did it, I did it all. I, I think that his voice would be absolutely lacking in any hint of humility. The story that we follow today with Nebuchadnezzar, it's going to involve, it's going to involve a humbling, a severe humbling event. And as we dial into this story, I, I think there's something incredibly powerful for us to learn that has to do with how to walk humbly before God in seasons of success. How to walk humbly before God when you feel like kind of things are locking in for you, where you're excelling. It is possible that today catches you in a moment where you feel like your marriage is succeeding. Or academically, you're sailing along and ready to wrap up a program that you've devoted yourself to. Maybe you feel like you're raising successful kids. Or like in a business or your company where you find yourself working, things are going very, very well. Today's question, what does it look like to walk in humility before God when you're excelling, when you're achieving, when you think there's some key parts of your life that are successful? Today, as we follow this humbling event that Nebuchadnezzar experiences, we have the opportunity to talk about the danger of arrogance and the healing power of being humble, walking in humility. Today's story, it unfolds in four parts. May, may our gracious God give us ears to hear, eyes to see. May he give us soft hearts to receive and to respond to what we see today. Daniel chapter 4, a four-part story. Part 1 begins in the palace. Daniel chapter 4, verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. <laughs> That's the success story. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was standing in my palace. I was at home. I was content. I was prosperous. I just imagine this scene here. I mean, the dude could order any food that he had an appetite for, the, the, the best of wine, snap his fingers, a servant shows up, you know, what can I get you, what do you need? I, Nebuchadnezzar, at home in my palace, I was safe, I was secure, I was contented, I was prosperous. What's wrong with this story is that what it doesn't say, there's an absence, there's something that's missing there, there is no reference to God. There, there is no reference to the fact that maybe God had blessed Nebuchadnezzar with this opportunity, with this authority, and with this ability. There is a, a God absence in the story. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was in my palace, secure, contented, and prosperous. Lean into the story of Nebuchadnezzar in like three lethal words. It's like you hear Nebuchadnezzar saying, I did this. Babylon the Great, it's really Nebuchadnezzar the Great. I did this. And there's a reason why Nebuchadnezzar would feel like I did this. Because he did. He had worked incredibly hard. He had conquered territories. He was receiving tribute and taxes from other nations. He had envisioned many of these building projects. They happened while he was king. When he said, I did this, it's true. But it's only partly true. 
And there may be times in our lives when justifiably we could say, I did this. I did this at work. I set an alarm clock. I got up. I went in on time. I worked hard. I went above and beyond what was called for. I got promoted. And I received raises with those promotions. I did this. I started out as cleanup boy, and now I'm a project supervisor. I did this, and we did. Sort of. <laughs> it's just not the whole picture. Yeah, academically, I went to class. I handed in my assignments. I prepared for tests. I succeeded in earning this degree, and you did. But that's just not the whole picture. I worked, I budgeted, I saved, I invested, I successfully planned for retirement, and you did. It's just not the whole picture. The, the problem with the I did this thing isn't that it's untrue, it's just that it's partial and incomplete. So would you take a moment with me and just consider certain things in life that we can't take responsibility for? that we didn't do. I made, I made some decisions in life. I made a decision to go to this Bible college. I made a decision to become a pastor. Chris and I made a decision to marry each other. Yet there were decisions I didn't make. I did not choose the country of my birth. I was born in America. <laughs> I didn't choose that. And my reality might be wildly different as far as opportunity. If, if I had been born not by my choice, in a third world country trying to scrape together a living on a couple dollars a day. I didn't, choose, I didn't choose that. I was blessed with that. Secondly, I didn't choose the decade of my birth. I was born in 1962, which means I entered my adult years in the 80s. If I had been born five decades before, 50 years before, my birthday would have been in 1912, and I would have entered my adult years in the 1930s. Any of you know what the 1930s was? What happened in this fine country? The Great Depression? Massive people out of work. Uh, I didn't choose the decade of my birth, and my reality from an opportunity standpoint might have been wildly different in the 80s than if I had been born 50 years earlier. There's something else you don't get to choose. You don't get to choose your parents. And if you had a mom or a dad, and not all of you did, but if you had a mom or a dad who got up and went to work every day and work was just normal, it was just something that you did, this gets impressed upon you as part of a work ethic that is wildly different from someone raised in a house where work was sporadic on again, off again, maybe yes, maybe no. If you were raised with a hardworking parent, that is a massive advantage. It can also be advantage if you had a parent that valued education of one sort or another, either vocational training or possibly a degree path. But if your parent says, you know, you probably ought to get trained to do something here in life, that's an asset. What I'm trying to say here is that it's possible to say, I did this, and we were a massive part of it. We had to make decisions to work hard, to work diligently, and to work faithfully. But then there's all of this other stuff that comes in that was out of our control and stuff that we didn't choose. And maybe you didn't have consistent faithful parents, but you can look back on certain influences in your life that were powerful influences. I had a coach, a soccer coach, who taught me discipline. I credit 
Coach Dave Heron with teaching me how to be a disciplined person. I had a youth pastor by the name of Dave Probasco who started to encourage spiritual leadership. I had a speech teacher by the name of Mrs. Burlingham. I don't know her first name. I don't think she had one. She was just Mrs. Burlingham. <laughs> who, when I stood up and gave these two-minute to five-minute speeches in oral communication class, she encouraged me in public speaking. And all of that was just my junior year in high school. That coach, that youth pastor, that speech teacher, and I could pick other times in my life too where the gracious hand of God just brought these influences into my life. I, I think it is a humble reflection just to kind of look back. Now, Guy Ross asked the question at the end of how I built this, so was this uh, hard work or was this luck? With my worldview, I wouldn't use the word luck. I would use the word was that hard work or did you in any way just taste the goodness and mercy and kindness of God along the way? And I think most of us who are insightful can see the fingerprints of God's goodness and kindness all over our lives at various phases, at various stages. My friends, this is a reflection of humility that just goes, yeah, I did this, but it's just not the whole picture. I did this with God's mercy and with God's help and with these people and with this opportunity, and I can't take credit for a lot of this. <laughs> Here's Nebuchadnezzar. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. Anybody other than me think this story might be about to take a significant turn? Part two, part two of the story, the dream. Part two, the dream. I had a dream that made me afraid. I was lying in bed and images and visions passed through my mind and terrified me. Nebuchadnezzar in his palace, contented, prosperous. He has this dream one night that totally undoes him, dismantles him. He thinks it's a prediction of his future. And some of you who have been uh, with us a couple weeks in our study knows what he's about to do. He's about to call in the wise men to interpret the dream. Uh, the enchanters, the magicians, the astrologers, what does this dream mean? And they pull out their books and they listen to his dream and they go, we don't know. We're stumped. We don't, we don't have a clue what that means. Nebuchadnezzar says, get Daniel, get Daniel in here. Daniel was not raised in Babylon. He was raised in Israel. His hometown was Jerusalem. He's been exiled to Babylon. And this Israelite by the name of Daniel has risen through the ranks. And Nebuchadnezzar knows something about Daniel. He will say about Daniel, he says, it's like the spirit of the gods is in you. God can reveal this to you and it's not revealed to my wise man. He hauls Daniel in. And Daniel's standing there, and the king says, okay, here was my dream. I'm going to tell it to you, and I want you to interpret it for me. And the dream began with a tree. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height, its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and uh, its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth, like this huge cosmic tree. 
Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Uh, under it, wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in the branches. From it, every creature was fed. Nebuchadnezzar is describing this dream tree, growing tall, touching the sky, beautiful leaves, abundant fruit, sheltering animals, nesting birds, providing food. And then it's like this angelic, angel-type God messenger comes out and begins to speak. And the voice says this, cut down the tree, trim off its branches, strip its leaves, scatter its fruit, let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Destroy everything. Knock it down. Except for the stump. But let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze. Let the stump remain in the ground. In the grass of the field. And then the voice says, let him be drenched with dew. Let the mind of a human being be taken from him and give him the mind of an animal. Let him wander in the field, drenched by the dew, on all fours, eating grass. And Nebuchadnezzar is like, what in the world? And he looks at Daniel, and Daniel is really shaken up. His dream is, is messed with Daniel. And the king says, don't be afraid to give me the interpretation of this dream. What does it mean? Is this about me? And Daniel, very compassionate for this egocentric monarch, Daniel looks at him and says, if only, if only this dream were about your enemies and not you. If only this dream were about your adversaries. And then he drops the bomb. He says, my majesty, you are the tree. You are the tree. You have grown big and large and your kingdom expansive. Your kingdom is the largest kingdom that has ever lived. It is tall, it is wide, it is flourishing. You are the tree. Well, how about that part about being the tree being cut down and wandering out under the dew and eating grass? <laughs> you will be driven away from people and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat uh, grass like an ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. You are, oh my king, you're going to lose your mind. You're going to wander outside. It's like your whole humanity is going to be stripped away. But you remember that part about the stump, that stump that remains? The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means... Pay attention to this, that your kingdom will be, what? That your kingdom will be, that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge, when you acknowledge that heaven rules. When you humble yourself and you acknowledge that there is a God in heaven and he gave you this platform, and he can take it away. When you acknowledge that heaven rules, when you acknowledge that you have certain advantages and certain opportunities and certain abilities and authorities that did not originate with you but came with him, when you acknowledge that heaven rules. When you acknowledge that God set you up and he can take you down. 
when you acknowledge that he gave you this, he loaned it to you, and he can take it away. And he will for a period of time when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Now, uh, now Daniel, he's just interpreted this weird dream. Now he goes out on a limb, pun intended. Now he goes out on a limb, and he's, he's going to say, King, um, can I give you some advice? I just want to give you some advice. Please receive my advice. This is part three of the story. It's a warning. It's a warning for Nebuchadnezzar to humble himself. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right. Renounce your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. I, I, mean, I mean, who knows? It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Just humble yourself, humble yourself. Who knows, maybe this wild animal out in the field being drenched by the dew, eating grass, maybe that won't happen. Maybe God will see your humility and allow your prosperity to continue. Interesting note in there. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and renounce your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed, by being kind to the oppressed. Do something for a second. We just, let's just go back to that picture of Babylon the Great. This dude constructed a massive amount of palaces and temples and streets and walls and gates and gardens and fountains in a very short period of time. How do you do that? I suspect that there were a whole lot of people who uh, were working for way less than minimum wage. In the city of Babylon, there is a constant flow of slave labor from the countries he had conquered. In the city of Babylon, there was a constant flow of cash from the treasuries that he had pillaged from around the world when he conquered country after country, people after people after people. Constant flow of money, constant flow of state slave labor. And Daniel says to him, you may humble yourself by being kind to the people you've been crushing. Listen, I think there's something in here for us. It's very powerful, even if you haven't been crushing anybody. <laughs> and it just had to do with the connection with two words, two words. And these two words are humility and kindness. Humility and kindness. It, it, I, I think this is helpful for this reason. Um, humility is an abstraction. Are you humble? I don't know. And if I think I am, does that mean I'm not? Uh, humility is an abstraction. But, but here we go. What if I practice humility toward God by showing kindness to people? Think about that. What if one of the ways to walk humbly before God is kindness to people? What if we're humble to the God we can't see by being kind to people we can see and know? And so just uh, imagine a wife who says, I humbled myself before God. 
You humbled yourself before God. What did that look like? Uh, I started showing respect to my husband even when I didn't want to and even when I thought he didn't deserve it. What if we practice humility toward God by showing kindness to people? And the dude says, yeah, we came to a breaking point and I had to humble myself before God. You say, well, what did that look like? I humbled myself before God by starting to be sensitive to my wife and her needs. I humbled myself before God, how I started thanking my parents. I started listening to them. I started responding before they had to ask me a fourth time. What if we show humility before God by showing kindness to people? I had to humble myself before God. What did that look like? Well, at work, just being hyper-considerate to people who are entry-level, because the entry-level people in our company, it's just like they come and go. There's just this constant turnover, and it's like they're invisible. It's like they're nameless. I humbled myself before God. How? I stopped bad-mouthing management. What if we show humility toward God by showing kindness toward people? I humbled myself before God. How did you do that? I stopped being mean and nasty when service was slow. (laughs) And not being visibly agitated by service staff that were doing their job. What if we show humility toward God by being kind to people? I think this will be helpful for us. What if humility is linked to a uncommon kindness to the people we can see, and that is a way of practicing humility toward the God that we can't see? This is Daniel's warning. King, please listen to my advice. Please listen to my advice. Turn from your sin by doing what is right, and turn from your wickedness by showing kindness to the people you've been crushing. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe your prosperity will continue. Maybe it will. Let's see. A year goes by. At the end of a year, we read that Nebuchadnezzar is on the roof of his palace. Think balcony here, surveying the majesty of great Babylon, Babylon the Great. And this is what comes out of King Nebuchadnezzar's mouth. Nebuchadnezzar, is this not great Babylon that that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? I did this by my power and for my credit. It was done by me. It was done for me. And you go, oops, dude, it's not like you didn't get warned. Into the field you go. Part four of the story. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until until his hair grew like, like, like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. It's like the guy loses his mind. It's like he flees the palace. It's like he goes out to the yard. He's under a tree. He's on all fours. Early in the morning, he's drenched with the dew. He is in desperate need of a haircut and a pedicure. 
into the field you go. Now, just at the risk of stating the obvious, what this passage tells you is that if you don't humble yourself, the same thing is going to happen to you. Well, not exactly this, but, but something will. It's a common uh, proverb. It's a proverb that's often used in English. It's actually taken from the Bible, the Old Testament book of Proverbs. It's this one here. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Can you read that one out loud with me? Ready? Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So we've kind of taken that and stripped out some words in the middle and kind of shrunk it down a little bit just to read this. Pride comes before a fall. So the pride comes before a fall is a reduction of something you would find in your Bible. Pride comes before a fall. My friends, some falls can be prevented. Some pain can't be prevented. It just comes your way. This is the way of life. There's another kind of pain that can be prevented, but it requires, it requires humility. There is a certain pain that can be prevented when you're humble enough to ask for help. There's a certain kind of pain that can be prevented or at least tempered by seeking out your campus pastor and saying, look, we're drowning here and we don't know what to do. There's a certain fall that can be prevented by one day sticking around in your small group afterwards and grabbing one woman or one guy and just saying, listen, earlier when I said things are okay, things are not okay. And we feel lost and we don't know what to do. The humility to say it's not okay. The humility to apologize. Hey, hey look, I'm, I'm sorry I blew it. And to apologize before the relationship totally unravels. Some falls can be prevented, but it requires humility. It's the humility to receive an apology. It's the humility to apologize first. Even if you think the problem was only like 30% yours. Some falls can be prevented. It's the humility to say there's been something going on in my life and it's been hidden and it's embarrassing and I've been fearing exposure and I need to expose it to you and I need to get it out in the open and I need to bring it into the light. Some falls can be prevented, but it, humility is required. The humility to recognize that we were part of the problem. Some falls can be prevented. Pride comes before a face plant. Some of those face plants simply didn't need to happen. And when I go, not going to do it. No way. I'm not going to apologize. I'm not going to ask for help. I'm not going to get advice. If I get advice, I'm not going to take it. I'm not going to acknowledge that I was part of the problem. Not going to do it. I'm too proud. I'm too proud to apologize. I'm too proud to ask for help. I'm too proud to check into a counselor. I'm too proud. It could be that you could wake up in a field one day. Alone. 
and isolated, far from God, and alienated from the people that should matter the most. It could be that you awaken to find yourself in a field someday, and that's exactly where we find Nebuchadnezzar. It's like the dude has lost his mind. He, his humanity has been stripped away. He's got like the mind of an animal. He's a beast. He's on all fours, drenched by the dew, in desperate need of a pedicure and a haircut. And this is not, this is not where the story ends. Do you remember the stump? Cut down the tree. Leave the stump. Leave the stump. Because his kingdom will be restored when he realizes that heaven rules. When he acknowledges God and realizes that he isn't God. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. My sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. Then my sanity was restored and his position was restored and his advisors were restored. See, the, our story lands not on the fact that God humbles the proud, but on the fact that God lifts the humble. It is on the heart of God to restore the humble. This isn't just the Nebuchadnezzar story. This occurs lots of places in the Bible where Peter, Jesus' disciple, said God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Or like here in James where you find this verse, he just says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will what? Humble yourself before the Lord and he will what? He will... He is the lifter. He will lift you up. It's like the heart of God is drawn to restore the humble. One of the most uh, memorable, one of the most famous stories that Jesus told, people who are only marginally connected to a church get familiar with this story. It's the story of the prodigal son. You know the story of the prodigal son. Uh, Son comes to his dad. Dad has two sons. Younger son comes and says, I want my inheritance now. I'm not waiting for you to die. It's like, I wish you were dead, and I want my money. Dad cuts the inheritance early, probably has to liquidate assets. Son takes the money, says, and he went off to a faraway country and wasted it on wild living. Use your imagination on that one. And there's a famine in that land. Everybody's broke. He's starving to death. He goes to work for a guy and it says this, it's really interesting. It says, and then the son was sent into the fields. The son was sent into the fields to feed the pigs. And literally, he's starving to death. He's looking at the pig food and saying, man, I just wish I could eat that. And then it says, and then it says, he came to his senses. And he said, I'm going to go back home. I'm going to apologize. I'm going to say to my dad, uh, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Just make me like one of your hired servants. My dad's slaves are eating better than I am. <laughs> and the story, the prodigal son is making his way home. We can imagine he smells. We can imagine he's ragged. We can imagine he's skinny. And the dad sees him at a distance, runs out, and he, he throws his arms around him. 
welcomes him home and throws a welcome home feast. Humble yourself and he will lift you up. Now, the part of the prodigal son story that we often focus on is the embrace of the father. And this is good and right that we do so. The part of the story that I want to take note of is how the son humbled himself that made him available to the embrace of the father. When he's in the field and he sees himself and he comes to his senses and he humbles himself, I'm gonna go back home, I'm gonna apologize, I'm gonna say, I blew it, I blew it, I blew it, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, I've sinned against heaven, against earth, I'm no longer worthy to become your, call your son. This is not only a story about the embrace of the father, this is a story about the humility of the son. Just wanted you to notice that the father meets him there because it is on the heart of God to restore the humble. I just want to plead with you, for those of you that are in some bad space right now, I just want to plead with you to humble yourself and expect God to meet you there. When you offer an apology and say, look, I'm, I'm sorry, expect God to meet you there in that relationship. When you go, Jeff, I gotta tell somebody what I've been doing, what I haven't been doing, what I did, or something that was done to me and nobody knows and it's eating me alive, expect God to meet you there. When you seek out someone you trust and you go, I feel lost and alone and I don't think I'm gonna make it out of this field without help. Expect God to meet you there because it is on the heart of God to restore the humble. Expect God to meet you there. I am in no way promising that every relationship or every opportunity will be restored. I can't promise that. I do think I can guarantee that God will meet you there in some pretty significant ways and what God often restores, he restores our joy, he restores our laughter, he restores life. He restores life to people who found themselves out in a field. Far from him and alienated from people that should matter most. It is on the heart of God to restore, to lift the humble. Humble yourself, and he will lift you up. Humble yourself, and he will lift you. This is the God who specializes in restoring, <laughs> in restoring the humble. And so gracious God, we give thanks that we were able to gather and open this word and open our hearts and see this king 
Gracious God, give us hearts that are soft, moldable, changeable. Transform us one day at a time as we walk in humility before you. We ask this in the name of Jesus who humbled himself when he came here for us. Amen. Have a great week. We'll see you.